All right, so last week we started a new series called uh, GPS. And we know for many of us, for most of us, if you have a smartphone and um, you have an app and you have um, Google on your smartphone, you can get that maps, which is a GPS. You can turn it on. Hey, Dave, good to see you. Um, And uh, you can turn it on. And then it helps you to get from place to place. Uh, Last week I mentioned that my wife uses it quite often. Um, She puts it in every day and makes sure she knows where she's going the following day. And she even has this app called Waze, which talks to you and has different voices that you can choose. You can choose any, practically any voice, right? I would gather, yes, as I embarrass her. Um, But uh, it's real helpful. I can tell you, so helpful that when you're looking for a place to eat for breakfast, you need it at the last minute and you need to make sure you're going in the right parking lot. Because if you know, and I know, if you put, if you have one of those magnetics on your windshield, you can attach it and as a magnetic to put your phone on there, you can use it like the old GPS, the one that's like a freestanding. But I always get mixed up because I can't see it as well if I'm trying to drive do this. And then I don't know sometimes which driveway or which road to turn on until it gets to that very spot because I get confused. And so GPS is a great invention. I don't know how we made it all these years without it. I know I mentioned last week in 2000 when we were going down to Dallas, we had to read off of sheets of paper and we didn't know what was in front of us. But today you can determine what is in front of you. If there's a traffic jam, if there's an accident, construction, you have that in front of you. And so it's important. But, you know, coming up from where I live now to here, it's anywhere between an hour and 45 minutes to two hours, depending on traffic. When I first started coming up here, and not just the time when I preached, but also in September, the GPS told me to get on back roads through French town and then get on the 78. And then 78, get off of 78 and go on another back road up and towards in the back. So when I started to do that, I noticed the time I was coming in the morning, I was hitting traffic jams. And so there was one time when I came up in September and I saw a traffic jam on 78 and I was on 513 and I said, oh man, I don't know, should I take it or not? Because It takes me going one route up here, and then when I drive home, it's a whole nother route. So I thought, what if I just continue on 513? Maybe I don't have to deal with the traffic. So I said, let me try that. And I did. It was a detour. And lo and behold, it's been my path since then. Because now I don't hit much traffic on 513 coming up. I mean, the worst I can get is maybe two or three cars in front of me at best. Because many people don't seem to be using those back roads. But... To me, that was a detour. Thankfully, I used it because if I didn't, my travel would come from one hour and 45 minutes to about two hours and 15 minutes. It would add another 30 minutes onto my travel. So it's interesting with detours. We don't like them sometimes. When we hit a road and a detour signs there, we're like, oh gosh, time consuming. Where is this going to take me? It's going to take me off path. And sometimes it does. And sometimes if you're driving two hours to work, You don't want to add another five or ten more minutes. It's enough. You want to get to the destination as quick as you can. And I find that when when in our own lives, when we're walking in our lives, whatever it may be, wherever we're going, whether we're physically driving in a car and using a GPS or metaphorically walking through our, our lives and our journey with Christ, 
We don't seem to like detours because detours takes us off our intended road, our agenda. We don't like detours because we don't know where it's going to take us. We don't know how far off of the road it's going to take us before it brings us back to that spot. We don't know if it's going to take us into a different spot, and then we have to pull that GPS out and say, where is it taking me now? And it can be very frustrating, and it can get you to a place to where you're kind of not sure. Well, that's kind of where Jonah was. As we look at the life of Jonah and we look at Jonah 1, we saw last week that Jonah decided to take his own detour. It wasn't something God put him on. It was something he intended to go. God said for him to travel 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. He said, no, Lord, I'm going to go to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles directly west, which we to know to be today southern Spain, some city in southern Spain possibly, scholars would look to. He gets on a boat and decides to go. And what does God do? He places a detour in his life. We know he rerouted him. We talked about it last week. He went down into the boat thinking he was going to get a good night's sleep for a few days and relax with 2,500 miles on a ship. Something changed. Immediately, God got involved. He intervened. In fact, in the language of the Hebrew in verse 4 of chapter 1, it's a hifal verse or a version of it where it's a tense. It's saying that he caused it. He didn't allow it. He caused it. So God caused a storm to come. And he did it specifically to stop Jonah in his tracks. It was a detour. How many of us want God to do that? Now, when you take a detour and you don't know what's in front of you and you don't know where it's going to lead you, you would say, no, 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 Lord, stop now. I don't want you to take me to the, the land of unknown. I don't want to. But God is saying, trust me, I have something cool for you if you just let me do it. But we fight and we battle against God and God's saying, just sit and wait. Well, Jonah didn't even battle. It was the people on the boat that were battling. The sailors were battling because as the boat was about to disassemble from God's powerful hand and storm on them, God seemed to, even in the language, the Hebrew language was saying that the boat was about to break and then God kept it together and then the sailors found out that Jonah needed to be thrown off in order for the storm to go down. And now we're a part of the narrative where we see that God so intervenes that he allows a... Now, he doesn't just simply allow it. He calls, he sends a big fish. Some would say the whale. We don't know. It's kind of like with the apple in chapter 3 of Genesis. We don't know what the fruit was that Eve ate before Adam. All we know is a big fish, the Hebrew says. We know it's this huge fish. Because here's where we've come from verse 17 in chapter 1. And then we're going to go on in chapter 2. So read with me. And it says this. It says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let me ask you a question. Have you known anyone to survive that? Has anybody come back to life and saying, I was in a fish for three days and three nights and I can live it. And it's a, it's a big story and you get it on TV and it got a million hits on YouTube. And someone's come and said, I've survived living in a fish, a big fish, possibly a whale for three days and three nights. Probably not. So that's a miracle in and of itself. But what's the miracle that starts before he's swallowed up is that God sends it. 
So God, the word appointed in the Hebrew means that God caused it again. God brought this fish for Jonah to be swallowed up in. Now, would you, would you mind even thinking that you have to be thrown off of a boat for your life to be saved? That doesn't make any sense. So God's throwing a detour in his road and he's not, it's not computing. So you're looking at this and you're saying, wow, what's, what's actually happening here? And see, that's what's happening when we're in our own lives. When we think about that, couldn't God have just sent the Coast Guard to save him? Couldn't God have sent another boat? Is it possible that God would have done that? Well, in my own life, I saw that happen. I was in a lake ready to drown. And I won't get into the details, but God sent a boat to save me. I I kid you not. Camp Spofford, 1996. I made the newspaper. It just happened that a bunch of guys took the afternoon off, a bunch of painters, and decided to go tubing. And I was going down, and my friend was yelling out, and they heard him. I wouldn't be here today. But God sent a boat. Similar to God sent a big fish. And it's so important for us to understand that God had an appointment for this. Why? Because, see, Jonah should have died. He should have been destroyed as a prophet. He defied against God. He disobeyed God. God, in his mercy and his grace and his compassion, says, Jonah, I want to save you for something really awesome. I want to save 120,000 people plus, even though they're wicked and you don't like them and you don't care for my compassion and my grace, I want to show you how awesome it is. I'm going about to show you in this story. And so he's telling Jonah that, and here we look in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried out, and you heard my voice. Really important here in looking at the language as, it, as it's saying. Because, see, sometimes God allows detours, although time-consuming, are always on time. They're right on time. And here God allows him to be swallowed by this, we- this fish whale, and he's, he's swallowed up for a purpose because he lost his way, and God's trying to bring him back. God has a purpose for Jonah. Before he shows compassion on a people who are wicked and defiled, he's saying, I want to change your heart. I want you to understand that I want to move your heart to compassion. And I'll be willing to even place a detour in your life to do that. Even if it means you being swallowed up three days and three nights, I want to show you that. So now Jonah gets, God gets Jonah's attention and he starts to respond. But here's what the key word is right here. You would look at it and you read it in English, you wouldn't even think about it. He goes, he cries out, just as the sailors were crying out for God to save them. He wasn't crying out in chapter 1. He starts to cry out in chapter 2. And then he follows with, and you heard my voice. The word heard in Hebrew is shema. If you guys don't know what that means, let me tell you what that really means. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 5. I want to share that with you. Because the shema is in reference to the covenant. When God hears the cries of his people, he answers with compassion. Not because the person had a passion to reach God, but because he was at his end seeing his life 
before him. When I was drowning in a lake, I was crying out to God, I can assure you. And my wife and I were engaged. And I cried out her name. I saw my father and my mother and my life flash before me. And I cried out her name. I said, Lord, I can't even see my day of a wedding. You're, you're calling me. And I'm crying out. And God in his mercy and his compassion, not because I was living a life that was so pleasing to God, but because he heard, he heard my cry and he answered according to his covenant. See, this is what the Shema is. Now, in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, now these are the commandments, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord your God instructed me to teach so that you may carry them out into the land where you are headed. This is what Moses was saying to the Israelites as they were going into the promised land or towards it. Verse 2, and that you may so revere the Lord your God that you will keep all his statutes and commandments that I have given you. You, your children, and your grandchildren. See, the church, if we would liken it to a church, the church is a community. The Israelites were a community. They're a community of God. In this chapter, in chapter 6, when we say that we dedicate a people like a child, when we get up here as a pastor, uh, my colleagues and I, we get here and we dedicate a child, we read this chapter. Because the community of people of God are supposed to be a people to their grandchildren their grandchildren and their grandchildren. It goes on generation to generation. As a church, you want to set it up for your grandchildren. Because if you don't, you're not going to have any grandchildren coming. That's community. It's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament and it's still today in the 21st century. Church is about community, but community cannot exist when there's disunity. Unity means that submission and obedience needs to exist with a community. Kind of like when we were children, we had to listen to our parents. We didn't like it. We'd grunt and complain and whine and wah, wah, wah. But God placed mom and dad as an authority over us. And community means that whether you like it or not, you do that which brings honor and glory to God. That's submission. You're not submitting to another person. You're not saying, I am submitting to the eldership. You're not submitting to the eldership. You're submitting to God first. Then you submit to the eldership becomes much easier. But when people are fighting against leadership that God has appointed, you're not submitting to God. Neither am I. Community exists for that purpose. Now here's the Shema. This is the word, 6-3. Deuteronomy, pay attention, Israel, and be careful to do this so that it may go well with you. Unity is well in the soul when one obeys God. When you're fighting, you're fighting against God. When I'm fighting, I'm fighting against God. And he goes on to say this, with you that you may increase greatly in number as the Lord God of all your ancestors said to you, you will have a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, he goes on, Shema. Shema, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh Elohim is one. Yahweh. You must love Yahweh with all of your heart, with all of your mind and with all of your strength, with all your being. But when each one of us are fighting against God, 
there's no community or unity. There's nothing. There's no community and family when the kids disobey. There's no community and family when the parents lord their authority over their children. Same thing with elders. That's why 1 Peter 5 says that very clearly. This is what God is calling. God was telling Jonah, listen. And he heard his cry. And he said, guess what? I'm keeping my promise to you, Jonah, despite your disobedience. God begins to do a work. Jonah disobeyed God and should have been destroyed, but God displays again his compassion, his love, his mercy because of his covenant. See, he longs to love us. He longs to teach us. He longs to encourage us. He longs to come alongside of us like a great shepherd that he is because he longs to be patient with us. You know, I entitled this God's Relentless Patience because he is. He's patient with the church today. He was patient with the Israelites. He's patient, patient, patient. He's quick to kindness, quick to loving kindness, slow to anger, the Bible says. That's compassion. Have you ever felt like you had the same cry year after year? Have you ever felt like you're just sitting here and you're crying about the things from last year? (laughs) You're either crying about the things from this church, go God, oh God, help our church. Or you're crying about something in your life, Lord, it doesn't seem like anything's changing. You're going over and over and over, crying out to God and nothing seems to change. Is it possible that God may be getting our attention about something else beside the situation? See, in this particular situation here, he was crying out for God to change the situation. We haven't seen anything yet about a heart change. But he's doing that. And most scholars would say that this particular passage in verses 1 through 9, not even including 10, is a thanksgiving of praise. Psalms out there that we see in the book of Psalms, we see the similar cries, the crying out of people. We see it in chapter 18, 22, 81, 130. But there's one specific one I want to read to you in Psalm 116, 1 through 8, that is similar to this story. Listen to this. The psalmist is speaking. He says, I love the Lord because he heard my plea for mercy. And listen to me, Shema. Shema, same word again. As long as I live, I will call to him when I need help. The ropes of death tightened around me. The snares of Sheol confronted me. Interesting, he just talked about Sheol, the empty pit. And then he goes on to say this, I was confronted with trouble and sorrow. I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, rescue my life. The Lord is merciful and fair. Our God is compassionate. The Lord protects the untrained. I was in serious trouble and he delivered me. Rest once more, my soul, for the Lord has vindicated you. Yes, Lord, you rescued my life from death and kept my feet from stumbling. See, this is what he says in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep and the heart of the seas and flooded me, surrounded me, uh, the flood, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Meaning he was explaining how he was in the ocean before the fish swallowed him up. He was at his end. He was flooded. He goes, then I, 
He said, I am driven away from your sight, from the presence of the Lord, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Here he's saying, I've been driven away from your presence, but in chapter 1, he was fleeing from God's presence. So here he recognizes the very thing he wanted to do, he recognized that it was possible that God was allowing him to die. But he cries out some more, and he recognizes as he continues, and he goes on to say this, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, your presence. And the temple was the presence of God. It was the but God moment, the time where he said, but God. And here he's saying this because he's at his end. We don't hear anything about, Lord, have mercy on me for my sin, but we see that he's at his end. See, detours, when they're placed in our lives, although time-consuming, can put us back on track. Watch where he puts, puts them back on track. Verse 5, the waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And he goes on, he speaks this language. Look at water engulfed me up to my neck. He leads you to this picture. Deep ocean surrounded me. I know when I was in that lake, I didn't see anything around me. There was a sunken island about maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 yards. And the camp, there's this six-mile lake. One mile out, there's a sunken island. And I didn't know. We didn't know where it was. But all I saw was lakes surrounded me, and I started to panic. Because I don't tread water very long, and my friend who was able to tread a little water much longer than myself, I was in trouble. And I saw that surrounded me, and all of a sudden I panicked. Because when I panicked, I thought it was over. And he was going through a similar thing. And he goes on to use, seaweed was wrapped around my head. I know this one version says that it says what weeds were, but it was seaweed. And he goes, he went down to the very bottom of the mountains, meaning where the mountains were close by, he noticed there was a heavy rock, but it was come down to its end, meaning he was going down. Water was engulfing him. He was ready to swallow it up. I started swallowing water. I went unconscious. Didn't know what happened after that. He was coming at his end. And the gates of netherworld barred me in forever, meaning he's saying death came at my end. But here was Jonah. Here's the word where he uses, but God raised me up. He brought up me from the life of the pit, from the pit, up on my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. He recognizes Yahweh Elohim when he recognized that although he was at his end, he said, but God, similar to the resurrection. That's why Matthew he says something about the resurrection and the three days and three nights were similar to the, to the resurrection of the gospel. And he's saying that he was taking him out. God uses this detour, brings him to a place of death, almost to a place of death, and then raises him up. Do you ever think that maybe God was doing that with either one of us? Have you ever sensed that God wants to bring us to the death of Bruno? To the death of Bob? To the death of Brent? To the death of Rick? To the death of Tony? Does he want to bring us to a death within ourselves? Does he want Bruno to die so that Christ could be raised up? This is a metaphor, but his life was at his end, and God was trying to change Jonah all the way to the, to the depths of his being to saying, 
but God raised me. And he recognizes this. And he sees, and all of a sudden, God is starting to change his mind. We wonder if he's changing his heart, but he's changing his mind. And so God allows a detour. It's time-consuming, but he allows it. And the last thing I want to say is detours, although time-consuming, never towards God's plan. Watch this now in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That word remember is in reference to the covenant. Whenever you see the word remember in the Old Testament, it's in reference to his compassion, his love, his mercy, his grace, his overwhelming kindness, his desire to want to reach everyone, the lost sinner, the one who's wicked and evil, who's got raw on them. Look with me too, if you put your finger there, even Paul said it in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to allude that to. It's a similar kind of concept that Paul was alluding to in the Jewish mindset. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2. He was alluding to the fact that he was trying to remind the people there, especially in Ephesus, who were struggling. He was reminding Timothy, what do you do when it's bound up with emotion and struggle and difficulty when the false teachers are coming. What do I say to tell them? Paul says, Timothy, say this, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. For I am suffering bound the chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Nothing towards the will of God. God determines his own will. We don't determine it. If anyone says this is the will of God, it better be bathed in prayer and it better come from the word of God or you're speaking on your own initiative. And that's a dangerous place to be. Jonah recognized that God was allowing a detour in his life to change him. But the question is, how much of a change was it? Well, we're going to keep going in the narrative because it says, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. I remember the Lord at my very end. I saw it coming and I looked to you. You were there and you still had mercy on me even though I disobeyed you. So many times people today are wondering, how far can I take God till he says, that's it, I'm done with you. I have been there before. I have... I have cried out to God. I have sought God. I have even said to God, Lord, I think this one, you just can't be that gracious. You can't. Lord, you cannot display your grace and your mercy. This sin is just too heavy on me. You, I, Lord, there's got to be a sin that you just can't forgive. I think this is the one. Lord, you're done with me. Just rid of me, Lord. I've been there emotionally. You might think, well, Bruno, you're a pastor. It doesn't matter. 90% of pastors today are burnt out. Did you know that? Most pastors today, it's, they're second in line for divorces with their wives. They're, they're at their end. They're hurting. And they're crying out. But what gets any one of us moving is remembering Jesus Christ. Remembering the covenant love. Remember that no matter how much I sin, God is still merciful and gracious because he hears my cry. The Shema is based on his covenant, not based on whether I can keep it together or not. That's the mercy and the grace of God. But why is it that the church is pointing out everybody's mistakes? How come any one of you are looking to see when am I going to fail? Or how many of you are looking to see who else is going to fail? 
when we can be praying for the mercy and the grace of God. Pastors need for you to pray. You guys need to be praying for leaders, not hoping they fail. That's not unity, that's disunity. We don't want to do the same as leaders. We, want to, we don't want to hope you guys fail so we can say, see, I told you so. That's what happens so often in churches. See, I told you so, it's a mess. Instead of saying, wait a minute, have I been praying? And I know everybody's going to say, sure, I've been praying. Have you been praying for God's will? Because that means we all don't get our agenda. See, when God places detours in our lives, he wants something to happen. Do you know what he wants to do in this church? He wants to do something that's never happened before. If you keep looking back, you'll never look forward to what's ahead. If you're holding on to what this church could could be and what it used to be, forget it. It's not. I can't run like I used to. I've accepted that. (laughs) I don't try to go back and become this crazy fiend who who, who worked out at 275, sets of 10, was fiending at six days a week, working out, and I was just getting all big. I did it for one year and then fell apart. I got exhausted. Do you think I'm going to try to go back there? I can't even do half the weight I used to do anymore. I tried already in the past few months. I was hurting. I can't do what I used to do. I've accepted it. New days are ahead. It's changing. I've got accepted. Can't be like it used to be. That's my point. That's my point. He remembered Jesus. What gets me moving forward as a pastor is I remember Jesus. As a believer, we're supposed to be remembering Jesus. That's the beauty of the story. And he goes on to say this in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Uh Uh-oh, now we got a barricade in the road. We got something here. Jonah might have slipped up a little bit here. You know what he was saying in so many words? See those people who are holding on to vainless, worthless idols? They're not trusting God like I am. They're not putting their hope in God the way I am. That's what he said. Here was a man who just a chapter ago was running 2,500 miles away from the presence of God. All of a sudden now, God in his mercy and his grace, he starts to give himself some props. But he didn't have it. Because we know a chapter before he was running from God. So now we see a change of mind, but we may not see a change of heart. See, most scholars would say he didn't repent here. I would agree because of this verse. Because that word hope, or you might see mercy, is hesed in the, whole, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew. Hesed means loving kindness, mercy, and grace. God is the one who did this. God is the one who's been patient with Jonah. God is the one who, who presents his compassion. It's the one who provided him a fish so he could live still. He had no reason to boast. There was no boasting in this situation. Jonah's not doing anything special here. He's holding on to the mercy of God. When you and I are holding on to the mercy of God, that means we're in a desperate place. Is this church in a desperate place? I sure hope so. Because... Until this church gets there, they're going to have a hard time seeing the compassion of God. Because you and I can't show the compassion of God until God changes us. That's what needs to happen in the church anywhere for that matter. Whether you're in a transition or you're in growth. The mercy of God is what we have to experience in order to share it with others. 
Because when the mercy and compassion and love of God so permeates us, just like Jonah, when the waters permeated him, you're going to see results of unity. Compassionate hearts wanting to reach out to our fellow brothers and sisters, loving them and confessing sin and admitting our wrong and saying, have mercy on me, brother or sister, I have wronged you. That's when compassion starts to happen in a church. And God is doing the same thing here. Because he goes on to say this, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Meaning he caught himself again. Lord, I will do what the people who are vain and holding on to worthless idols will not do. Still a little arrogant tone there. Because what I have vowed I will pay. Funny, that's what the sailors said in chapter 1, when they were thankful. They were willing to keep the promise because he goes, salvation belongs to the Lord. I wrote something out yesterday and I just wanted to highlight why we know that Jonah did not have a repentant heart. I want to read this to you. It's something that I wrote out and I thought maybe it would be apropos to what See, throughout this passage, it's been reflected as a psalm of thanksgiving. But how do we know if it's a psalm of thanksgiving versus a penitent psalm, which is different? And I said, the Lord changed his situation from escaping from his presence in rebellion to accepting the mission commanded to him. What was the mission? To proclaim judgment upon the Ninevites. God detoured Jonah back to him and the mission. An important question that should highlight God's character of patience. Is God only interested in a changed situation or is he interested in a changed heart? Meaning, is God just interested in making this church switch from a struggling church in transition to a church that's thriving and, 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 and moving in the community and seeing lives change for the kingdom of God? Yes. In one sense, Yes but I don't think God wants to do it without a changed heart. If we just go into the situation, then we're missing the heart. God wants to change a heart so that all of us can join together. He's doing that with Jonah. He wanted Jonah to join his mission to reach the Ninevites, and he was patient with him. And he goes, in other words, did Jonah repent? Did his heart change or only his mind? God wants to change our hearts, not our, just our situation. So it's not an either or, it's both and. The reason why Jonah was detoured to the belly of the fish was to be delivered by God and experience his compassion. By experiencing his compassion, Jonah would have passion for the Ninevites. He changed his mind to obey the Lord on mission, but we don't see a repenting heart. Here's where you see a repenting heart. If you look at chapter 130 of Psalm, just work with me here, Psalm 130. If it's coming up on... I don't know if you guys, do you have that? Okay, great. You gave me the nod. That's great. Psalm 130, it says this. And I'll read it. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice and my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? I mean, if you would have marked down all my sins, who could stand? Nobody. None of us. But he goes on to say this, O Lord, he goes, but with, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. 
that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his sins. Iniquities, sins. There hasn't seemed to be a repentive heart with Jonah. He was at his end. He was desperate. He cried out to God for help and rescue. And God delivered him according to his Shema, to his covenant. But how many of us are wondering if God is interested in changing our hearts? <laughs> I laugh because he is. If you and I know that the purpose of the church is to make disciples, and we know that the purpose of the believer is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, guess what? When you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, guess what, guess what has to change? Our hearts. But our hearts don't change when we're fighting or angry, when we're frustrated and we're trying to see who's going to mess up next. A heart is changed when God enters in and a person submits and obeys and listens. God is going to hear it. He's going to do it no matter what because he's a compassionate God. But if you're waiting for him to change a situation before he changes a heart, he may do that. And guess what? You may be left behind just like I will. God wants to change a heart. We know Jonah, he gets angry in chapter 4. Remember what I said last week? He was displeased with God when he had compassion over the Ninevites. The word is what? Raw, evil. You and I have to ask that question. I can't answer it for you. But a question I can ask you that you need to answer do you think God wants to change your heart more than he wants to change the situation? I know the answer for me. For Bruno, he wants to change Bruno's heart. But for you, you have to answer that question. You and only you as one individual is accountable to God for that question. I'm accountable to God for my question. I can't make you change and you can't make me change but I sure can pray for you as you pray for me. God, God is bringing detours in our lives. God is bringing detours in this church to give this church an opportunity of hope. It's not programs. It's not what we used to do. It's what God wants to do right now. I know one thing, he wants to change heart. I know one thing, it's God's will for unity. I know one thing, it's God's will to appoint certain people to set up. And it's, it's God's will for us to submit in obedience to him and to leadership. And it's God's will for the leadership to never lord over their leadership. Because you know why? They're accountable to God. And I think that's key. I encourage you. I politely encourage you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, as an authority, as a pastor, and even the pastor presently in your church today as an intern, it's time to pray. If you catch yourself being frustrated with anger in anybody in this church, bring it to God. And I want to take you a step further. Pray for that person and let him draw close to God to bring unity. I've said this story before. God, by the way, obviously saved me from that drowning. It was a miracle of God. I got saved. You want to know more details about it, you can. 
30 more children came to know Christ. I was a youth retreat speaker back in 1996 at the camp. Um, it had nothing to do with me and it never will. There's a great story behind it, but God did it. But there was another story where when I was a, a youth associate pastor of a church that a guy had it out for me. He wrote a four-page letter to the board and said, how dare that guy call himself a pastor at 26 years old? Who does he think he is? My leaders were really upset. My best friend was livid. And I told him, you need to be quiet. You're only doing what they're doing. You need to pray. I don't want to hear any bad talking about these people in front of, my, in front of me. I sat him down and said, it's time to pray. We prayed hard for four months. That man embraced me in four months. He hugged me and smiled. And he even gave money towards the youth ministry, which he defied the youth ministry because I was leading it. It was prayer that did it. It was God that did it. I chose to say, I will not do what he's doing. I will not cause disunity in my heart. My wife's my witness. Could have took that boy behind the barnyard, the barn house. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I didn't. I didn't go back to my old ways. I prayed for him. God did a miracle. God could still do a miracle here. But I'm going to challenge you in the name of Jesus. You need to pray. You want to see a changed church, changed people, you need to pray. 